turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 5. Last week, uh, we did uh, the first part of Psalm 5, and then there was just too much. So we we stopped, uh, we tapped out for the day, Uh, we're going to pick it back up this morning, we're going to look at the the rest of Psalm 5. So uh, I know there's a, the bulletin says Psalm 6, that was of my fault. Um, so, but it's Psalm 5, part 2. Um, someone told me that they were dragging this morning. So I'm going to say, uh, for all who are able, why don't we stand uh, as, God, uh, as we read God's word together. This is Psalm 5. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love you, love your name, may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. And we pray this morning for understanding. Lord, speak to us today. Show us our sin and show us our Savior. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to start by just briefly reviewing where we were last week. Uh, Last week, we opened by looking at David's experience. We looked at what it is that David is going through in this psalm and thinking about what that might mean for our lives in this world. And what we see is the psalm opens in verses 1 and 2 and David is groaning and David is crying out to God. And it seems like David is not under direct threat from an adversary as he was in say Psalm 3 But instead, David seems to be overwhelmed by the evil in the world. He looks around and he sees a world full of people who are, verse 6 says, liars and deceitful and bloodthirsty. Verse 9 says they are people who flatter and lie and they are destructive. Verse 
5 says they are boastful. They're not even kind of ashamed of the way they are living and the things that they are doing. And what the picture here seems to paint as you look at all of it together is you see David overwhelmed by the prevalence of people who manipulate and use any means necessary to get power and influence for themselves. These are people who use and abuse other people made in God's image for their own ends. And friends, as we said last week, we live in this same kind of world. And so one of the things Psalm 5 is doing for us is not just giving vent to our experience of this brokenness in the world, it is actually teaching us a faithful response. And what we see David's response is, is prayer. David responds to the prevalence of evil in the world by praying to God. And last week, we looked at David's posture in prayer. And we saw that he was honest in the way he was praying. He was honest about his experience. He was persistent praying each day, it seems like, with the morning sacrifice. He was expectant, waiting and watching for God to answer his prayer. And he was obedient, seeking to walk in righteousness, even as he is experiencing brokenness in the world. We looked not only at his posture last week, we also looked at the basis of his prayer. And we see David crying out in verses uh, 4 to 6 that God is holy. It's God's character that is anchoring David's prayer. He's saying, Lord... You are holy. Look at all this wickedness and act to address it. Today, we're going to look at two other things pertaining to David's prayer. We're going to look at the content of his prayer. In other words, we're going to look at what he is asking for. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the hope of David's prayer. So let's jump into the content. The first thing we see that David prays for, we see in verse 10. And he prays for God to judge the wicked. To judge the wicked. You see it in verse 10. He says, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David is asking God to make them bear their guilt, to make them pay the account, the debt that they are accruing by sinning against God's holiness, by sinning against those who are made in God's image. He's saying, Lord, make them fall prey to their own schemes. Lord, they have rebelled against you. Again, we see for David here, it doesn't seem like this is a personal issue that he is experiencing directly. He is saying these people have rebelled against God and therefore are liable to judgment. And here's what I want us to see this morning. This is a sobering prayer to pray. It is sobering to ask God to judge the wicked. But it's also an acceptable prayer prayer to pray. Here's the thing. We, we all want judgment. We really do. Uh, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, we all want judgment in some form or fashion. We all want wrongs in the world, injustices in the world to be addressed. 
Everybody wants that. Even in our world now, we talk about cancel culture, uh, whether from the right or the left. Cancel culture, simply sort of the, the canceling of people who do things wrong, excluding them from work and public life and shaming them, that is an expression of our desire for judgment. When people do what we think is wrong, we see our culture judge them. And, and cancel culture, this desire for judgment, largely just sort of prunes back apparent evil in the world. Uh, one of my favorite books that I read a few years ago uh, was called The Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, and the author, a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler, says that uh, judgment is really good news. Judgment is good news. And he goes through and he talks about uh, the experience he had of desiring judgment before he was a Christian and then after he was a Christian. And he said, before I was a Christian, I was passionate about justice in things like environmental advocacy. And I was passionate about justice and then I wanted to see genocide stopped and I wanted to see human trafficking put an end to. And I wanted to prune back this evil in the world. But he said, but after I became a Christian, I realized that God isn't interested in just pruning back evil. You know, I cared about genocide. God says he's coming for anger. You know, I care about human trafficking. God says he's coming to judge lust. God is not interested in simply pruning back evil and making it more manageable in the world. God is interested in ripping evil out of his creation by the roots. Friends, we long for judgment. We long to see wrongs punished, injustices corrected. We long to see evil removed from God's world. But part of the problem we face sometimes is that we want judgment just for other people. We don't really want judgment turned upon us. And that's the problem, implicit in praying to ask God to judge the wicked. Because when we ask God to do things about sin, when we ask God to judge sin and to judge evil and to judge wickedness, we are implicated. We are implicated. And you see this elsewhere in the scriptures. David explicitly acknowledges this in another psalm. In Psalm 143, uh, verse 2, he says to God, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. David recognizes, like, Lord, I want you to deal with evil, but that means I have a problem too. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says the exact same thing. There is no one righteous, not even one. In fact, he cites Psalm 5 there in that passage. No one does good. We want God to judge the wicked, but that means we are asking in some ways for God also to judge us. And that's why we see the second thing David prays in Psalm 5. He prays, Lord, judge the wicked, but change me. Lord, change me. And David prays that the Lord would, would change his behavior and his heart. You see in verses 8 and 9 where David is praying for God to change his behavior. 
He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. And they flatter with their tongue. What David is praying there is, Lord, lead me in righteousness. And then he adds this this note. Because of my enemies. Lead me in righteousness because of my enemies. And he describes those enemies. That's why I read verse 9 as well. He said, those enemies use flattery and they use words to lead people towards destruction. Friends, the most dangerous enemies we have in our lives might not be those who wish our harm outwardly. They might not be those who are most hostile to us openly. The most dangerous enemies in our lives might actually be those who make us feel awesome about ourselves. Those who make us feel important or special or needed. All the while encouraging our worst impulses. See, friends, I want you to realize that enemies are not just those openly hostile to us. They're also those who appear to be friendly to us, but encourage us to walk in ways that are not righteous. And so I want to think briefly about both of those groups and what it might mean for us to walk in righteousness. As we look at enemies uh, who are openly hostile towards us, sometimes uh, as God's people, as Christians, we feel a temptation to join with the wicked. We feel a temptation to, wouldn't it just be easier to go with the flow, to not be different, to not stand out in a culture that is hostile towards me, to just do the things that everybody else is doing. And so time and again, we see Christians just becoming more worldly. Christians are sort of giving up, going with the flow, turning away from faithfulness and righteousness and obedience, and instead embracing the culture's ideas on things like sexuality, on things like greed, acting like money is our ultimate hope and security, becoming covetous, desiring more and more and more and more. And even looking for our identity and our work or our performance and and finding and, and constructing there an identity that is displeasing to God because it's ultimately saying that what I achieve and what I do is more important than what God has said I am. Friends, when we do this, we are walking in unrighteousness. We are yielding to enemies Because these enemies are not seeking what is good for us. They are living in a way that is contrary to God's design for his people and for humanity. But friends, there's another set of enemies. The enemies are not just the ones who encourage us to abandon what the gospel would have us do and walk in worldliness. The other danger is that we look at the worldliness We see clearly the danger on this one side, and we decide to justify sinful means to fight and overcome that worldliness. Friends, that is an also, uh, that is an equal and opposite danger for us. 
I read an article a few weeks ago where someone was saying, this is an unprecedented time in the life of the church. And the time for Christians to be gentle and humble and winsome in the culture is done. It's time to fight. It's time to scrap. It's time to punch the culture in the nose. The stakes are too high. The culture is too hostile. And this guy was advocating that what Christians should do as we participate in the public sphere is we need to be more harsh. We need to be more caustic. We need to be more contemptuous in the way we speak about people. And we need to be more sarcastic. And friends, I would just remind you, the Bible never gives us that option. The Bible never gives us that option. You can look at places like Proverbs 15, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 2, Titus 3, James 3, Galatians 5, Galatians 6, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 3 for a short list of all the places we are encouraged and mandated by the gospel to be humble, to be gentle, to be respectful, to be winsome in the ways that we engage particularly with those outside of the faith. Friends, when people encourage us to act in an ungodly way, even if it is in pursuit, even if it is fighting against other ungodliness, that is also unrighteousness. And listen, we absolutely, Christians in this culture are losing cultural power and influence. But that does not make our principles less important. If anything, it makes them more important. It is more important now that we stand out from the culture in the way that we interact. Now is absolutely the time to be gentle and respectful and winsome and humble. I think this is what David is getting at here in verse 8. He's saying, lead me in righteousness because of my enemies. Because interacting with those who are different from us is going to cause us to have to think about what is actually righteous. We might be tempted to join with the wickedness in the world or to adopt the world's way of fighting as we deal with wickedness in the world. And in both cases, we walk in unrighteousness. But it's helpful to note that David's prayer here is that the Lord would lead him in righteousness. His prayer is that the Lord would do this, that he would make his way straight before David. You see, friends, the Lord is helping us to walk in righteousness. He's given us his word. He has given us his church, the body of believers, to call one another to repentance where we need to and to encourage us to walk in faithfulness and obedience. David says, Lord, lead me in righteousness because of my enemies. Whatever that might look like in your life, we must pray the same thing. The Lord, David prays that the Lord would change him and to change his behavior. That's what we get at in verses 8 and 9. But not just his behavior. David's not just asking the Lord to change his sort of outward conformity and obedience to the law. David is asking the Lord to change his heart. You see it in verses 11 and 12. 
He says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David's praying that the Lord would allow and empower his people to rejoice in him, to exult in him, to find their joy and their delight in God himself. About eight years ago, uh, I went to, uh, I changed churches. I was an assistant pastor at one church in North Carolina and went uh, to another church. Uh, And I was working uh, with a good friend of mine uh, who was a senior pastor at that church. And it was right after I started, he said, hey, why don't you preach once just to get people used to you? Um, So I stood up and I preached uh, from Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and uh, finished my sermon. And he took me to lunch the next day. And uh, he said, hey, man, he's like, that sermon was well written. He said, you seem like you're comfortable in front of people. People seem to resonate with that. He's like, there's just one thing I want you to think about in this sermon next time you preach. I was like, okay, let's hear it. I want you to think about what it would look like for you to love God while you preach. Man, kind of hurt. I was like, man, I just thought if I put together a good sermon and was kind of comfortable in front of people, then that would be enough. But his point was, everything came across except the fact that you cared about what you were saying. Like, what would it look like for the gospel to penetrate to the level of your emotions in your preaching? My favorite theologian, I've quoted him a number of times, Herman Bavink. Uh, begins one of his systematic theologies by saying, God and God alone is man's highest good. God and God alone is man's highest good. Part of what we have to learn as God's people is that the greatest prize of the gospel is not eternal life. It's not that we get to live forever. That is a secondary benefit. The greatest prize of the gospel is God himself. We get fellowship and communion for eternity with our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. And so as we look at verses 11 and 12 in Psalm 5, we get a picture of what it is that God wants to see in our hearts and what it is we need to pray to God to do in our hearts. It's not enough just for us to hate sin. It's not enough for us just to not do bad stuff. We must learn to love what is good. We must cry out to God that God would help us love what is good, which means loving God himself delighting in God, rejoicing in God. Because our obedience in the gospel ultimately flows out of a transformed heart. As we grow in love for God, we change the way that we live because when we love God, we love what God loves. We want to please God. And we are praying here in Psalm 5. David is teaching us to pray that God would change our loves, change our hearts. 
I said earlier when we were talking about praying to judge the wicked that this was an acceptable prayer to God. And it is. It is acceptable for us to call out to God to judge the wicked. But I think for us, for this prayer to be acceptable, we must always be willing to pray both sides of the prayer. We can't just pray for God to judge other people. But we must also pray that God would change us. We can't just hate the sin of others. We must learn to hate sin in our own hearts and to turn away from it and turn back to God in faith and repentance and obedience again and again and again. Lord, judge the wicked and change me is the acceptable prayer. And friends, that ultimately takes us to David's hope. We see David's hope in verse 7. He says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David's hope as he prays to God, as he cries out to God, as he groans to God about the wickedness that he sees in the world, David's ultimate hope is not that God is just going to make things more manageable. David's ultimate hope is that he will dwell with God. And he says earlier in verse 4, you might notice this, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. David's hope is that he will dwell with God, but he knows that evil cannot dwell with God. David wants to enter God's house and to dwell with him, but how is that even possible for a sinful people? For a people that have evil still at work in their hearts? Well, he gives us the answer there in verse 7. It is only possible through the abundance of God's steadfast love. It's true for David, and it's true for us. Our ability to dwell with God is only because God has loved us steadfastly. And nowhere do we see and understand the steadfast love of God more clearly than in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, on the cross, Jesus takes the judgment that we wicked people deserve. And in his resurrection, God takes us from death to life and transforms us. He changes us. Everything that we have in this life, all of our salvation from the first to the last is something God has done for us in Jesus. And because of that, we will, in fact dwell with God forever. And so friends, as we think about this prayer in Psalm 5 in the context of the brokenness we see in the world around us, my encouragement for you is simply this. Keep the long term in mind. Keep the long term in mind. Because sin and evil and wickedness and brokenness will remain in this world in some form or another until the day Jesus returns. And that means we will continue to pray Psalm 5 
Until the day Jesus returns, we will continue to groan. We will continue to cry out. We will continue to ask God to intervene. But evil will not ultimately win. Because evil will be removed from God's world when Jesus returns. And it won't just be pruned. It won't just be made more manageable. It will be ripped out by its roots. Revelation 21 says that on that day, all things will be made new. Psalm 36, our call to worship this morning, tells us that on that day, we will feast on the abundance of God's house. And Psalm 23 reminds us that in Christ and because of Christ, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in the midst of a world full of brokenness and sin and death and evil, you are faithful. Your holiness is not in question. And Lord, we do pray this morning that you would judge wickedness and evil in the world. And Lord, we pray also that you would change us. Lord, teach us to walk in righteousness especially when we are tempted to either join the world or fight the world with sinful means. Lord, help us turn away from unrighteousness where it might lurk in our hearts already and help us to walk in obedience to your word. Let us be gentle and humble and winsome and respectful, especially in the ways that we speak. But Lord, we pray that you'll not only change our behavior, but that you'll change our hearts. Father, inflame our hearts with love for you. Make us delight in you. Teach us to exult in you and to rejoice in you, not because you give us great things, but because you are great. You are true, you are good, and you are beautiful. And Lord, we pray even now, as we come to your table, that you would be at work in us, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose, to anchor us in your work for us, in the person and work of Jesus. Father, make the gospel more real to us today than it has been before, and transform us by it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.